The talk this morning is called The Four. Number four. After I had um, dutifully washed up my bowl and cup this morning, I walked out of the dining hall and um, noticed that there were some signs on the wall and one of them said, Lunch offered anonymously in recognition of the Buddhist revolutions celebrated this week, the feminine and the secular. Which is a, a clear reference to the two retreats that are running parallel in this building right now. But what struck me, and I have to admit for I think the first time, was the idea that the secular is a voice that is not heard in Buddhist tradition, much in the same way that the feminine is a voice that is not much heard. And it somehow made me recognize that although I'm trying to somehow introduce the idea of at least the possibility of a secular Buddhism, I've seen that as a somewhat uh, almost theological exercise. What I perhaps haven't really acknowledged is that there's something in my own experience with the Dharma over the years in which I feel I have not been heard. That my, my sense of myself, perhaps not always defined by the term secular, has often felt to be an identity, a a sense of uh, where I am, where others are in this world, that is somehow excluded from the dominant uh, discourse of the Buddhist traditions. And this is an awareness that's been slowly uh, growing within me over the years. I think the first time that I was really struck by it I was attending a, a talk at Plum Village with Thich Nhat Hanh. And I don't know whether they do this now, but 20-odd years ago, they would um, spend some, a day here and a day there celebrating a traditional Vietnamese festival, New Year or Harvest or whatever it might be. And I remember being very moved actually by the way in which the Vietnamese lay women handled the offerings which were basically foods and bowls of drink and placed them on the um, so it wasn't exactly an altar but a kind of a, a table and what struck me was how although these uh, people were silent, there was something about the Dhamma that spoke through their bodies, that spoke through the extraordinarily gracious way in which they lifted and moved and placed these objects. And I realized then that this is probably a lineage that is not acknowledged. A lineage that no doubt these women learnt unconsciously perhaps from their mothers who learnt it from their grandmothers and their mothers and their mothers probably for hundreds of years. And it made me realise that the transmission of the Dharma is not just about the transmission of ideas, the transmission of doctrines, the transmission of 
authority, but actually is also silently transmitted through bodily acts of this nature. But that's not acknowledged. And it is, in fact, quite literally silenced. I had a similar experience um, probably around this same time, maybe a bit later, when I went to Tibet to update my guidebook to Tibet. And I was circumambulating the monastery of uh, Tashilumbo, which is the main uh, seat of the Panchen Lama. It's in the town or near the town of Shigatse. And around the monastery uh, perimeter, uh, which is just rock, it's just raw rock. There's no trees, there's no grass, there's nothing. It's just a, a rock scape. It's basically an ecological disaster zone. It's all the foliage has been eroded away long ago. But when you walk around this trail, you find that the the path has been literally worn away by the press of feet and the rubbing of bodies against the rock over hundreds of years. And so some of the rock has actually been polished to a high sheen just by the passing of uh, people, mainly ordinary, simple, Tibetan lay people. And in some ways I found that more impressive and moving than the monastery around which we were circumambulating with its beautiful golden roofs and its wonderful Buddha images and its tanka and all of these things. What somehow impressed itself on me was the traces left by, again, silent, voiceless people engaging in acts of devotion. And I think there are many other examples. I'm not going to go into them. The whole um, lay culture of architecture, painting, uh, even simple things like the way lanterns, paper lanterns are designed, Um, All of these are, I feel, expressions of a certain understanding, a certain intuition, a certain faith. But the people who left those marks are not acknowledged. They're somehow the silent ones. And the only voices you hear are those of the, um, the lamas and the priests and the monks Uh, those who are, as it were, in positions of authority, they are the ones whose voices dominate. And so I feel that these are, of course, in a sense, the lineages of secularity, the lineages of those, those worlds and those times. So I feel in a very real sense that perhaps I need to be more uh, forthright in, as this text rather beautifully says, the celebration of secularity rather than thinking of it just as another shift or twist in Buddhist thinking. To actually to own that identity unapologetically. And perhaps this is the way, or these are the ways, in which uh, the Dhamma is in a sense coming to life or finding its voice in our contemporary culture is precisely through being open to hearing those voices that traditionally (coughs) have not been allowed um, a place in the system. So what I'm, going to, um, what I'm going to do today is, to, is again, to try to, to hear that more secular voice, or let's say to read uh, the Buddha's first sermon in this case, uh, with that particular perspective 
in mind. Let's just recap on what we, we looked at yesterday. We had the story of uh, Mr. Gautama arriving in Uruvela, uh, not having found any satisfactory response to the questions that had moved him to embark on his quest. And so he stops. He sits beneath a tree. And he uncovers or discovers his ground, his tannang, which he describes as twofold. A tannang which is the idea of, or the, the, the experience really, of the unfolding of life itself, conditioned arising, conditionality. And the tannang which is the experience of stopping in a very deep and profound way. The stopping of greed, the stopping of hatred, stopping of confusion, which is called Nibbana. And then, after an indeterminate period of time, there arises a god, Brahma, who encourages him to go and teach. And so he sets off. And in this story too, we can, uh, we can see this same rhythm occurring of a stopping and then of an arising, an ar- or a ceasing and an arising, an arising and a ceasing. And so he goes to the Deer Park in Isipatana, Sanat. He finds his five former ascetic companions and he starts to say something. And what he says is recorded in this uh, very famous uh, discourse called the discourse that sets in motion the wheel of Dhamma. That's how it's come to be known. In the canon, it's not actually given that title. It's not really, it hasn't got a title at all. Now, the core of this uh, discourse is the presentation of the Four Noble Truths. I prefer to think of these as four noble tasks rather than truths, and we'll see why as I read through the text. Uh, this is something that is, uh, has, has, has been central to my understanding of this text for many, many years. Recently, this would have probably just been a few months ago, I was um, reading a, an essay by a man called uh, K.R. Norman, who's probably the world's leading authority on mid-Indo-Aryan Prakrits. Prakrit means natural languages, as opposed to Sanskrit, which means constructed language. Sanskrit uh, is formed, it's the same word as Sanskara, formations. And Prakrit, though, means the languages of the ordinary people. And it's important to um, bear in mind, I feel, that when the Buddha taught, he didn't use Sanskrit. He used what are called the Prakrits. In other words, the local idiomatic languages of the day. Now, In Mr. Norman's analysis um, in this essay of the first sermon, he um, concludes, um, it's a very technical essay, it's it's an analysis of the grammar and the syntax and case endings and stuff like that. But the conclusion he draws is, and I'm quoting, the earliest form of this sutta 
did not include the term Aryang Satyang, noble truth. Now, for Mr. Norman, this is uh, a sort of philological curiosity. But for me, it was like a bolt of lightning. <laughs> because this, um, um, if this is true, and his argument is fairly compelling and scholars accept it, is that the whole idea of truth, noble truth, uh, was actually absent. The Buddha wasn't talking about the four truths at all. He was talking about well, we don't actually know because we don't have a copy of the original text. All we can say with certainty, following Norman's analysis, is that the text did not include the word noble truth, and hence the title of this talk. All we can talk about, really, are the four. <laughs> well, I don't see why that's so amusing, because if you're a Christian... <laughs> You don't have any problem with the word the Trinity, the three. We're just not used to hearing about the four. But that, I think, is all we can safely say, the four. Now, around the same time, um, as I was reading Mr. Norman, I was also reading um, a book by an Italian philosopher and politician, a Catholic philosopher and politician, called Gianni Vattimo. I may have mentioned him. And he's just published a book called A Farewell to Truth. And there's a very striking sentence in this, in this book. Vattimo says, When the word truth is uttered, a shadow of violence is cast as well. In other words, the language of truth, or the claim to have the truth, is the first step, in a way, of establishing division between people. We have the truth implies that if you don't agree with me, then you don't. And I can then justify my understanding and my position and my authority on the basis of my having privileged access to what is true. And that, I feel, is the seed of violence. It doesn't mean that everybody who claims to know the truth is going to immediately embark on a campaign of murder and mayhem. I mean, obviously not. But people who do embark on campaigns of murder and mayhem, very often do so in the name of their having the truth, be that the Crusades, be that the Inquisition, be that Hitler, be that Stalin, be that Mao, that these pogroms, genocides, are done in the name of truth. Truth sets up a division between believers in the true faith and heretics and apostates and others. It creates dividing lines. A very good example contemporarily is the wall that has been erected in Israel between uh, uh, the part occupied by the Israelis and the West Bank, or the Berlin Wall. This is done, in, to some extent, on the basis of a claim that God gave this land to the people of Israel. And that is a statement of truth. So, if we reflect on this, by taking out the word noble truth, I think we're also, in a sense, removing uh, a tendency to claim some kind of ultimate authority, which is very much um, um, claimed on behalf of patriarchal systems, religious systems rather than secular systems. And I think we can sense here quite easily 
a rather natural alliance between the feminine and the secular. Whereas the truth claims seem to be the claims of the religious patriarchy. And I find it a great relief to uh, learn that the notion of truth was not something that the Buddha was interested in. I may have already pointed out that another doctrine of truth is that of the two truths, ultimate truth, relative truth, or absolute truth, conventional truth, which we also do not find in the suttas or the vinaya even once. And yet it has become a mainstay of all Buddhist philosophical and doctrinal systems. So again, that's absent, and now it appears that even the notion of the four truths was absent. So I'm going to read the text, the sutta, um, stripped down fairly radically, removing repetition, removing what I feel to be unnecessary um, um, additions, and also removing the word noble truth. So just listen to what it sounds like. This is what I heard. He was staying at Baranasi at the deer park at Isipatana, and he addressed the group of five. One gone forth from home to homelessness does not pursue two dead ends. Which two? Addiction to pleasure through indulging in sensuality, which is vulgar, village-like, undignified and unfulfilling, and addiction to self-punishment, which is painful, undignified and unfulfilling. I have awoken to a middle path that does not lead to these two dead ends. It is a path that generates vision and awareness. It leads to tranquility, lucid understanding, awakening and release. It is just this noble eightfold path. Complete seeing, thinking, talking, acting, working, trying, recollecting, and concentrating. This is dukkha. Birth is dukkha. Aging is dukkha. Sickness is dukkha. Death is dukkha. Encountering what is not dear is dukkha. Separation from what is dear is dukkha. Not getting what one wants is dukkha. These five clinging clusters are dukkha. This is the arising. It is craving, which is repetitive. It wallows in attachment and greed, obsessively indulging in this and that, craving for stimulation, craving for existence, craving for non-existence. This is the ceasing, the traceless fading away and cessation of that craving, the letting go and abandoning of it, freedom and independence from it. And this is the path, the path with eight branches, complete seeing, thinking, talking, acting, working, trying, recollecting and concentrating. Such is dukkha. It can be fully known. It has been fully known. Such is the arising. It can be let go of. It has been let go of. Such is the ceasing. It can be experienced. It has been experienced. Such is the path. It can be cultivated. It has been cultivated. So there arose in me illumination about things previously unknown. And as long as my knowledge and vision was not entirely clear 
about the twelve aspects of the four, I did not claim to have had a peerless awakening in this world, with its humans and celestials, its gods and devils, its ascetics and priests. Only when my knowledge and vision was clear in all these ways did I claim to have had such awakening. The freedom of my mind is unshakable. There will be no more repetitive existence. This is what he said. Inspired, the five delighted in his words. And while he was speaking, the dispassionate, stainless Dhamma eye arose in Kondanya, who said, Whatever arises, ceases. So, this text, in a way, hinges around what we can call the four. And in their most um, uh, economic uh, presentation, they come down to four words. Dukkha, Samudaya, arising. Niroda, ceasing. And Magga, path. And this is the, the most common shorthand that we find uh, for these four uh, throughout the tradition. I can remember very clearly when I was studying uh, in the Tibetan Gelugpa school that you'd often come across Dugnal, Kunjung, Gakpa, Lam. Dukkha, arising, ceasing, path. If we go to Nagarjuna, Nagarjuna, and we look at the very last verse of the uh, Mula Madhyamaka Karika, the verses from the center of chapter 24, which is Nagarjuna's analysis of awakening, this is what we find. He says, to see conditionality is to see dukkha arising, ceasing, and the path. That's how the chapter concludes. That's the key point, perhaps. And this, I think, illuminates what the Buddha was, in a way, struggling to achieve. And I suspect he probably pondered this deeply as he walked from Uruvela, Bodhgaya, to Isipatana. Probably would have taken him a couple of weeks at least, about a hundred and something miles. How was he going to translate the principle that he had uncovered, that of conditionality, conditioned arising, into a practice? Something that people could do. The passage we looked at yesterday remained, at some sense, fairly abstract. This idea of the ground being this conditionality, conditioned arising, and the other ground being this ceasing, this stopping, where we have already this same idea of it being both an arising and a ceasing, but it's still not spelt out into a form of practice or a form of life or a way of life. And that is what he achieves, I feel, in his presentation of the four. Now you've probably already noticed that <clears throat> the second two terms of the four, the arising and the ceasing, are precisely where we started two days ago when I already quoted Kondanya's response 
which was whatever arises ceases. It's exactly the same two words, samudaya and niroda. So at the heart of the four lies the principle of arising and ceasing. But now what happens in this presentation is that the Buddha is very clear as to what he means by arising and what he means by ceasing and that is the arising of grasping and the ceasing of grasping. That's quite explicit. So we have dukkha, then the arising of grasping or craving or longing, then the ceasing of grasping, craving, longing, and then the path. Let's try and expound on that a little bit more in detail. In some ways, the most helpful way to read this text, paradoxically, is to read it backwards. Start at the end and work back, which is what I'm going to do. And the end says... As long as my knowledge and vision was not entirely clear about the twelve aspects of the four, I did not claim to have had a peerless awakening in the world. And I feel this is a very very important passage because here he answers quite unambiguously what he means by being awake. It's striking that he doesn't declare that his awakening is an awakening to, let's say, the unconditioned, or to emptiness, or to truth, or to some single, ultimate, privileged aspect of reality. Very often when this word enlightenment or awakening is used um, today, it tends to be taken to mean that a person who's enlightened, a person who's awake, has somehow gained access to some privileged truth. Call it what you will, God, the absolute, the divine. I've sometimes on on courses like this um, read out that passage and left the 12 aspects of the four out and then ask the audience to say, well, what do you think he was awakened to? Very rarely do people come up with the four truths. It's usually something, something ultimate. So I think it's quite telling, and probably deliberate, that the Buddha does not speak in terms of gaining access to some one thing that triggers being enlightened but rather, what is quite explicit here, he understands his awakening as in terms of a process, a sequence of tasks that has been recognized, that has been performed, and that has been accomplished. And this is how we arrive at the 12 aspects of the four. So again, we now go back to the next passage in the text, which says, such is dukkha, it can be fully known. It has been fully known. You see three little clauses. Recognition, such is dukkha. Performance, it can be fully known. In other words, you can fully know it, you can actually engage in the task of fully knowing dukkha and what you aspire to is to accomplish that task. It has been fully known. And then the same goes for the arising, which is craving. It's something that you can recognize. This is the arising. It is something that can be performed. In this case, you can embark on the task of letting go of grasping and you can aspire to 
the um, uh, the goal of completely letting it go. And then the third point, this is the ceasing of grasping. That's something you can recognize as a task to be performed, which here means to experience it for yourself. And thirdly, you can aspire to fully experience that ceasing. And fourthly, the path, you recognize the path, the Eightfold Path, that becomes a task that you can perform. In this case, you can cultivate that path, which literally means to bring it into being. It's a practice. And you can aspire to fully cultivate and create such a path. And therefore, we have 12. Four, the four points, the four, each of which has three aspects. Recognition, performance, and accomplishment. And if my math doesn't fail me, three times four is twelve. So the, the Buddha's account of his awakening is not only about four, it's about four tasks, each of which have been recognized, performed, and accomplished. And this is quite... Uh, explicit and clear within the first uh, discourse uh, he supposedly gave. So we can now extend these four into four tasks or four practices. And what we're going to have to try and understand next is how they connect one to the other. The first task is to fully know or I rather prefer the word embrace. To embrace dukkha. To let go of grasping. To experience the stopping of grasping. And to cultivate a path. Now, and this may be true for you as it has been for me, I was always very puzzled as to why the four truths were listed in that order. Traditionally, the first truth, suffering. The second truth is the origin of suffering. Again, Samudaya is translated as origin, whereas in fact it means arising. Recent translators have used the word arising or even uprising. The third truth is considered to be the cessation of suffering. The fourth truth is said to be the path that leads to the cessation of suffering. That's Buddhist orthodoxy right through the whole tradition. And so what I'm questioning here is in fact a central platform of all Buddhist thought. But when we strip bare this text, when we find ourselves in a sense, validated in this by philological analysis of the text, we come down to four tasks. And I think when we understand these four as tasks, we can understand, or I feel that I've understood, why they're presented in that sequence. Because the first task is the condition for the second, the second the condition for the third, and the third the condition for the fourth. In other words, going back to Nagarjuna, those who understand conditionality understand dukkha, the arising, the ceasing, and the path. This is how the Buddha translates his principle into a practice. By embracing dukkha creates the condition for letting go of grasping. Letting go of grasping is the condition for the stopping of grasping. And the stopping of grasping is the condition for the creation and the cultivation of a way of life. A way of life that's not conditioned by grasping. 
So let's just try to unpack that yet further. What does it mean to fully know dukkha? First of all, I would argue that if we do not fully know dukkha, it's by not fully knowing, not embracing the totality of our life situation in any given moment, that's what gives rise to the arising of grasping and craving. So in some senses, I'm inverting the traditional Buddhist dogma. Rather than craving being the cause of dukkha, dukkha is the cause of craving. And rather than the path being the cause that leads to the cessation of dukkha, or the cessation of craving rather, the cessation of craving is what gives rise to the path. It's back to front. Embracing dukkha means, in the language we used yesterday, to embrace the living ground of the situation you find yourself in. It's to be able to say, yes, I've been born, I'm fragile, vulnerable, subject to sickness, subject to aging, subject to death. Things happen that I don't want to happen. And in brief, as he says, the five clinging clusters are dukkha. The five clinging clusters are form, feeling, perception, inclination, and consciousness, which is shorthand for the totality of what we call experience or life. So to embrace dukkha is an injunction to embrace life. In fact, we could almost translate dukkha as life. There's a rather too strong bias towards negative and painful things. Dukkha equals suffering. Birth, well, that's life. Sickness, that's life. Aging, that's life. Death, that's life too. Not getting what one wants, well, that's life. We don't have to think of it in exclusively painful terms. I think this is just shorthand for embrace your life. Embrace what's happening now. And of course what we do in the practice of mindfulness, the practice of awareness, is that we embrace life. We embrace what's going on in our, in our breath, in our body, in our feelings, in our perceptions, in our inclinations, in our consciousness in what we're aware of, what we hear and see and smell and taste and touch. This is the standard account of what it means to be mindful and aware, to embrace the condition. Now, as we've noticed yesterday, um, that's easier said than done. As we try to do that, we find that the mind reacts and resists and rebels rather do anything than that. I'd much rather try and remember who Richard Nixon's Secretary of State was. <laughs> or whatever. The mind will resort to any kind of um, strategy to not embrace its condition. In other words, um, life, when we open our minds and our hearts and our feelings to the raw experience that's going on tends to um, provoke a, uh, a reaction. And that reaction the Buddha calls an uprising, samudaya, an arising. And that arising is what is generically called grasping or craving. But remember, grasping, craving is again shorthand for attachment, fear, hatred, jealousy, distractedness, lethargy, sloth, torpor, the whole shebang. That these things that we work with in this practice are precisely what habitually arise, rise up in response to our experience of life. 
And that's why they're so powerful. Uh, Mara is another way of talking about this. And something that we begin to experience very immediately when we try to go against that stream or that flood, as it's sometimes translated. And that flood is this uprising. Now the point is not to suppress it. The point is to be able to embrace that as well because that is also life. There's nothing wrong with reacting in that way. That is simply how we as um, evolved organisms behave. We don't have to demonize this at all. It's simply quite naturally what we do. But as evolved organisms, we are in a way designed to survive. We're not designed to become Buddhas, to become awake. That entails actually going against that flow, going against that stream. And so the way we do that is not by pushing it down, but rather by being totally open to it. And over time, I feel, that it's the embracing of our, our life situation, the embracing of dukkha, the embracing of our condition, that becomes the, uh, the source or the ground for the ceasing of what previously arose. Very good example of this um, I heard from a little story Jack Cornfield gave at a conference in Garrison a few months ago. Um, he told of how sometimes here at Spirit Rock you have gang members from Oakland or wherever uh, coming for an afternoon of mindfulness. And what Jack said they do is they put a table, I don't know whether it's here or probably down in the community hall below, put a table in the hall with a candle on it and then tell the kids to go outside and get, pick up a stone for every one that they know who's been shot or murdered or killed or whatever. And he says some of the kids come in with like you know, a handful of stones. And then he asks them to place the stones on the table by the candle. Now what that has the effect of doing is totally changing the uh, environment. The kids arrive, you know, with the usual kind of gangland swagger and egoism. But once they've recollected death, once they've recollected their friends who have been taken away from them, they return to a whole different way of being in the world. And I'm sure it's similar for us when we attend a funeral, for example, of someone who's been very close to us, who's died, or someone who's very sick at death's door, or someone who's very old. As the Buddha said, that one, those who would tend to me should tend to the sick. This is the practice of embracing dukkha, embracing life. And when one does that in a heartfelt way, one begins to realize the absurdity of our habitual habit pattern and strategy to try to get from the situation what we like and to get rid of what we don't like. This pushing and pulling, this um, natural reactivity to the basis of what we feel. Feel pleasure, I want it. Feel pain, I don't want it. We get caught up in this push-pull mechanism that in a way drives the whole uh, way we think and speak and act in order to get what we want, to get rid of what we don't like. We're trying, as it were, to uh, manipulate and control an unmanipulable and uncontrollable world to suit me. Once we um, open ourselves to a deeper experience of life, one in which we acknowledge what is called dukkha, our condition as human beings, our condition as mortals. And again, it's not just a personal 
um, experience, the more that we begin to open to uh, dukkha, we begin to realize that it's not just my problem. We realize that it extends infinitely across the surface of the earth, in all communities, in all societies. That suffering is, I don't really like the word suffering, but dukkha is, in a way, the condition of life itself, of arising and ceasing, of birth and death. So we're opening ourselves either through our breath, the arising and the ceasing of the breath that becomes a sort of a foundation for opening to the arising and the ceasing of life. And we witness this reality of the world um, wherever we look. When we switch on the TV, when we open the newspaper, when we attend, uh, let's say, a performance of Hamlet or King Lear, or we listen to a piece of, 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 of music by Bach or Beethoven or whatever, this opens up the world to us in which we go beyond or we transcend our petty, selfish concerns and connect with the reality of life itself. And as we do that, the more that we attune ourselves to that, even though we keep noticing the same stuff arising, the stories, the attachments, the fears, we take it less and less seriously. We see it as just, oh, here we go again. And all that stuff coming up, going away. And the more that we somehow revise or, or transform in some ways um, this primary relationship to life, the more that arising of grasping, etc., um, if it doesn't you know, vanish, it ceases to have such a hold over us. We're able to find within ourselves an open, spacious awareness in which we no longer are, as it were, the, the puppets whose strings are pulled and pushed by these habits of behavior. Now, clearly, this is not easy. This is not something that we'll be able to master on a weekend meditation course. <laughs> We're talking about a practice that involves the whole of our life for the rest of our lives. And again, the next step is actually fairly straightforward. It's, it's quite clear that the more the craving is let go of, and again, I think we must be careful, it's not a, f a willful rejecting of these things. That would be getting caught up in an aversive relationship rather than uh, an attracted relationship. It's beyond aversion and attraction. We're simply noticing the conditions of life as they unfold, what habitually rises up in response to them. And rather than getting carried away in that, we just observe it rise and pass away. We don't judge it as good or bad. It's what happens, it's natural. But we are free, this is the key point, we are free not to follow it, not to get caught up in it. We are free to be able to say, this is what's happening. However awful it might be, whatever ghastly fantasy is conjuring itself up in your head, that's just a ghastly fantasy conjuring it up in your head. It's not a problem. It's only a problem if you say, yeah, I am going to go get that bastard then it's a problem. If you act on it, if you assent to it, if you believe it, if you buy into it. So in some ways what happens in, in, in mindfulness practice is that it actually begins to release often some pretty dark stuff. It often brings up forgotten traumas, for example. It can bring up all kinds of repressed material, as Freud would have called it. Um, there's a great power in mindfulness, not just to make us peaceful and calm, but also to uh, release 
things that we've been denying and forgetting and avoiding. And meditation can sometimes be a real roller coaster, as you might have found. And that's not a sign that you're not doing it right. Arguably, it's the opposite. This is what happens that you become very, very attuned to what the Buddha calls samudaya, the uprising. And what, in a way, allows there to be a ceasing, a letting go of that uprising, is this primary practice, which is true, I think, of all Buddhist meditations, of fully embracing your condition as it is. Practice of mindfulness, practice of Zen, and these are the two I'm most familiar with, uh, practice of the Lam Rim reflections in Tibetan Buddhism, all of them are about embracing the condition that is happening right now. And really doing that in a sustained and in an integral way. So the what arises the second of these four tasks, starts to fall away of its own accord. You don't have to push it, push it away. It just ceases to either come up so strongly, or if it does, you don't buy into it. Which in a sense comes to the same thing. And it's there that we then get this shift to the stopping or the ceasing of this grasping. And we experience moments in which we realize that that uprising is not happening anymore. That we experience uh, a deep moments of genuine peace. Nibbana is sometimes called peace, shanti. Of stillness, of calm, of openness. And in some senses, it's there that we touch what the Buddha calls again our ground. Uh, the ground of our humanity, in a way, is the ground in which we're able to come to rest. But that is not the goal of the practice. Nibbana is not the goal. That coming to rest, that moments of peace and stillness are the beginning of something else arising. That ceasing is what leads to the arising of a way of life, the Eightfold Path. Seeing, thinking, speaking, acting, working, trying, recollecting, concentrating. It opens up to a process, a way of being in the world that is no longer conditioned by the habitual uprising of craving. The problem with craving and grasping is not that it causes suffering, although often it does, that's undeniable, but I think the real problem with it is that it prevents us from opening up into another way of life. It's a block, it's a hindrance, it's a it's a constriction that disables us from living fully, uh, from flourishing fully as a human person. And that's what we're going to look at uh, tomorrow, what the Buddha calls um, entering the stream. Entering the stream is entering the Eightfold Path. And that's, I feel, what in a way this whole practice is about. Is, um, is entering into that flow that stems not from our likes and dislikes and our habits, from, from the very ground of what we are. And again, I think it hardly needs pointing out, but this um, way of life has nothing particularly religious about it. We don't have to believe anything. We can try it out and see whether or not it works. So we'll stop there.
And um, now we have walking, and then sitting, and um, then lunch. Thank you. Lunch, which is offered anonymously in recognition of the Buddhist revolution celebrated this week, the feminine and the secular. Thanks. Okay. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.